The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's just so cool to be here. Normally, the formula for these talks is a little bit of background for people who don't know the project, the update on what we've done this year, and then maybe we get to some Buddhism. (laughs) Um, I see a lot of faces I don't recognize, and that may not only be my senility, so... (laughs) Um, but it isn't to talk about the project. It's intended to be a talk about practice. You know, and the examples all come from the project, and it's necessary to have a little bit of background. Okay? But, okay. Um, we are a small Buddhist chaplaincy organization. We, this is our, the end of our 10th year. I can't believe it. <laughs> uh, when we started, there were no antiretrovirals in Cambodia and everybody died. And we were founded as a sort of free alternative to the monks so that people who didn't have the resources for regular spiritual support, had something. And that remains the center of what we do, emotional and spiritual support. Um, We chant, we meditate, we do a lot of Reiki and healing touch. When we started, I had this illusion that we were going to teach the patients to meditate. And they're sick. They don't want to learn how to meditate. (laughs) What we found with the Reiki and later with the healing touch is that it really does help people enter a meditative state without their having to put forth the effort, without their having to learn to monitor And so we use that a lot. From 2006, every one of us practices it. Um, My staff is nine people, plus me, I'm the only foreigner. Um, Five of them are AIDS patients. That's going to become relevant in a little bit. That's how we got them. Uh, We saw that they were magnificent as caregivers, and we grabbed them. We stole them from the Mary Knoll organization. <laughs> Mary Knoll is our best friend in Cambodia. Uh, I've long thought that it's not what religion you practice, it's kind of where you are in the spectrum. So we get along real well with Mary Knoll. For those who don't know, Mary Knoll does grassroots work in more than 100 countries, and they wrote the book on it. They wrote the book on how to do effective work inside the context where you are. 
Um, the head of the program who left this year was my unofficial director for the first nine years and before that helped me design was a resource at every turn um, now I'm sort of grown up and all without him <laughs> anyway He's gone to their Washington office to work on social justice. Um, over the years when antiretrovirals came into Cambodia, our work changed, obviously. I mean, so for a few years we did a lot of social work because by the time people got their antiretroviral medications, everybody knows what antiretrovirals are for AIDS. Those are the pills that keep you alive and able to function and for many, many, many people able to live pretty close to a normal life. Um, by the t when they first came in, people were really, 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 really had gone too far before they got them. They had lost spouses, they had lost children, they had been close to death repeatedly. And the transition back to living and the expectation of living and the responsibilities of living was tremendously difficult. Yeah. People who've worked with people who had huge accidents or huge disabilities know this process very well. That once you've gotten to a certain place it's very hard to take up life again. So for a few years in there, mostly 2002, 3, 4, a lot of our work was designed to help people make that turnaround, to get them the social services they need, to do what was necessary so they could begin to live. And many, many, many people did it. If you look at my staff, you don't know who has AIDS. Yeah? Okay. Then, in the past few years, really since 2005, the third arm of our program, which I deliberately started without, has grown exponentially, and that's especially this year. That's material aid. When we started, we did no material aid at all. We worked in places where the basics were there. In the Maryknoll Hospice, we worked in the hospitals where people had the food and the medicine so that we could concentrate on the emotional and spiritual side. So that's always sort of kept us a cut above the truly destitute. Yeah. But if we were not going to be a material aid organization and we were going to allow people to concentrate at all on the emotional and spiritual side, we had to do that. We had to have a firewall. And we still need a firewall. So we do a fair bit of material aid, but we do it on one side of a firewall. We don't do it in the hospices, we don't do it in the hospitals. We don't do it on home visits, except under very special circumstances. 
And we are not primary providers of food and money and medicine. There are numerous multi-million dollar organizations doing that. Nobody else goes in there to do what we do. I say that because I'm going to start talking about material aid big time. And I want you to know that if I have to talk about, if I want to say what is the practical crisis facing our organization right now, it's to keep the tail from wagging the dog. (laughs) In 2005, when they moved several thousand families 22 kilometers outside the city, and there were a bunch of AIDS patients. And the medicine is free, but they couldn't get there to get it. So we started going out there once a week to give them transportation, keeping track of their appointments, making sure they made them. Every time they went and got their medicines, they got money to go the next time. So that's how we got into material aid. Um, Then... We started getting calls from the hospitals where we work, and especially the pediatric hospital this year, that they want to give antiretrovirals to children coming in from the provinces, but the parents cannot be relied on to have the money to bring the kid. So we've got maybe 25 kids that we are the guarantors for. We've got another 30, 35 people at one of the other hospitals where we just, they come in, we give them the transportation. So the transportation started at the resettlement site, spread to the hospitals, and this year has added two more resettlement sites. Um, One of them is small. We've only got five patients out there. The other is huge. It's a community we used to see in the center of the city and they moved them outside and there's about 55 people with AIDS in it. So we do that. (laughs) Um, In 2004, one of our patients went to prison. So we started seeing him. And then the National AIDS Hospital, sorry, this is gonna, am, am I clear enough to follow so far? Because, you know, it's 10 years of history and I'm picking and choosing and running all over the place. We were always from the beginning very close to the National AIDS Hospital. And in the last few years, they have managed to set up a program where people in prison get their medicines. Prison used to be a death sentence for people with AIDS because there was no way to get their medicines. So, as they set that up, we were also kind of, they were bringing the prisoners to the National AIDS Hospital, and we would see them there, so, okay, he's in, he's in prison, he's in the hospital, we started supporting them. We're supporting our own patients who are in prison. We're doing that. A year ago, the prison director said, look, you can't do this. You're supporting seven people and you're creating a lot of jealousy and conflict. So we went back. I went back last year, and thanks to all of you, we started supporting first 20 people and then 40 people. 
and now the National AIDS Hospice, Hospital is testing everyone. This is primarily in the men's prison because the women's and children's prison has another organization that takes care of this. But now they're testing everybody in the prison for AIDS. So we get four or five new ones a month. Last month we had 81 people, including the AIDS and the tubercular people. What we provide them with is 25 packs of noodles, a can of condensed milk, some monkey bombs, some hard candy, and uh, five bucks worth of cash. But we were up to 81 people last month, and who knows what it's going to be by the time I get back. So two of us basically handled that work, the, my director and me. And that leaves the major part of our staff free to continue to do the core work. And that matters enormously. Okay, so things that happened this year outside of getting overwhelmed by material aid. <laughs> um, personally, I got to go to Burma for the Chaswa retreat. Many of you know about that. That's the one with the senior Burmese teacher and senior Western teacher, and it goes on for three weeks. And it is a phenomenal experience. It's just wonderful. Um, I was worried that I would come back bored to death with Cambodia from it. But I got so busy I didn't have time to be. Um... One very big thing in our staff is we had our own retreat. I used to send my staff to Goyenka, and it used to be fine. And then a year ago, the senior monk said, just basically threw my staff out because they do Reiki. And my director had been his assistant the year before. And he said, and he said you know, they've always signed on the form that they do Reiki. I mean... And he said, what do you mean you're throwing me out? I was your assistant last year. And the guy said, I'm sorry. And to someone else he said, you can stay if you promise never to do Reiki again in your life. I mean, we're not talking about they're doing Reiki on retreat. We're talking about that they are Reiki practitioners. And six of them are master practitioners and five of them teach it. Okay? And... At least two of them are much better than I am. I'm not a bad practitioner, but I've got two people doing Reiki who are really, really gifted. And they do it every day, and they've been doing it for years. And when I watch them work, I am just stunned. All right? So it's not a casual thing to say, okay, stop doing Reiki. So this year we had our own retreat. <laughs> and there's a monk that we hang out with, who takes care of a hospital in, down towards the Vietnamese border. And behind the hospital, he's built a huge meditation hall. And four times a year, he brings in doctors from France to do volunteer work. So there's a dormitory where the doctors stay. And that's where we had the retreat. And a friend of mine who worked in Cambodia for four years and has been a student of... Ayakemas and a number of other, for over 30 years, taught the retreat. 
and a lovely person who hangs out at IMC, but I don't see him this morning, um, translated. And I managed it, and now I have a great deal of respect for retreat managers. <laughs> they really work. <laughs> so that was, that was one of the big, big things that happened for us. And my staff knows traditional Khmer chanting, but this time while I'm away, there is a unique Cambodian kind of chanting that is used to transmute suffering. And they're studying it while I'm gone. That's what they're doing while I'm in the States this year. It is unearthly gorgeous. I mean, you know, the hair stands up on your, on your arms. and <laughs> I can't vouch for that. I don't know what the Dhamma talk is about. I had two kind of working topics, one of which had to do with moral conflict and one of which had to do with burnout. And I was talking to Gil Thursday, and he said, well, why don't you talk about joy? what happens at this point. Wish me luck. <laughs> Somewhere this year, I started to get it. I mean, those of you who've been hearing me year after year have, heard, have been hearing me complain about how I never get to see the patients anymore because my staff does that. And while I really respect and appreciate how wonderfully they do it, you know, doing financial reports is just not the same thing. <laughs> Even going to the prison and handing people things is not the same thing as developing a genuine, compassionate intimacy with someone who is suffering. Now, I get to do some of that, and that's going to have some relevance here. But it's my staff who do that day after day after day who deal with all the emotions that come up when you're doing that. You know, I used to say our, our job was to love people and then they died. <laughs> and for my staff, that's still a huge part of the job. The situation for AIDS in Cambodia is infinitely better than it was when we began. Prevalence is way down. Medicines are really available. We work where the systems fail. So we're always kind of winding up seeing the part that isn't happening. But we work in this context that has changed enormously over the years. Okay? And we're at the cusp of that. This is going to be relevant in a minute. You know, when I look back at the conditions we dealt with in 2000 and 2001 and 2002, hospitals where patients were allowed one diaper a day because there weren't any more. No antiretrovirals. Yeah. Then I realized just how lucky we've been, all of us who've been working in Cambodia, working in the epidemic. So... <laughs> 
I say it's on the cusp because as of December 31st, the Cambodian government is taking over all the AIDS programs. And Medicine Sans Frontiers and Family Health International and Palliative Sans Frontiers and Medicines du Monde are all going to be going. And in the places where the government has taken over the programs already, we don't feel a lot of reason to feel, to be confident that the level of care is going to continue. It's a completely corrupt government and it's millions and millions of dollars. The argument which sounds perfectly good and is perfectly good at the, at the one level is you organizations have, you come, have come in, you've set up structures, you've built the hospitals, you've provided the equipment, you've trained the staff, thank you very much, it's time to go. Okay. Yeah. But um, we expect it's going to get harder. All of us expect it's going to get harder. We don't know how hard it's going to get, but it's going to get harder. Um, this is a digression. It's going to come in at the last minute, but it's a digression. Okay? One of our oldest patients since 2002 has been a pain in the neck since we knew her. Those of you who get my letters know about Sokda. Right. The first year she was on antiretrovirals, first six months she tried to kill herself with pills twice. We were at the hospital with them pumping her stomach in the middle of the night. Um, then she got beaten up and we had to hide her out for a month. Then she ran away and married someone in the north of the country and we had a couple of years of peace. <laughs> then... She got a divorce, and in the middle of all this, she, they, were, they were taking workers into Thailand illegally, and she got arrested a couple of times and spent four and five, four and five months in the prisons there, the immigration prisons. And, you know, they took care of the AIDS, but they didn't have the antiretrovirals. So she developed antiretroviral resistance big time, she got put on second-line drugs, and it got better for a while. She developed cancer, uh, cervical cancer. They operated. A year later, it was back. And by that time, she was in massive antiretroviral failure. Okay. And this is how things have been. <laughs> so she decided to sign herself out of further medical treatment and stay in the village where she was living, where people were very kind to her. And we, you know, she signed the papers for her kids, for where her kids would be going. They'd be going to a, an orphanage that she knew because she had stayed at that project that's run by a friend of ours. And that was all done. She signed herself out. She went back to the village. And we arranged to go out there every two weeks. You know, uh, an Australian nun in the Tibetan tradition has been funding and supporting her 
for all the extras we've been doing. So we rebuilt her house, and we took her a water filter, and we brought her money for food, and we brought her money for everything else she needed, and, 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 and. And <laughs> three weeks later, she was back in Phnom Penh, because she had <laughs> ostensibly because of her prolapsed uterus, but actually because she'd had a fight with a neighbor and tried to stab them. <laughs> This is the soap doll we know and love. <laughs> Getting to the village is not easy. It's three and a half hours by motorcycle. Only the first two hours are on road. I'm 65 years old. This is not my idea of fun. <laughs> so in addition to all the other work, in addition to the prison, in addition to the resettlement sites, in addition to our patient load of 200 people getting Reiki and, and counseling and love, and in addition to our chanting, in addition to our Dharma training, you know, we're taking the motorcycle out there. <laughs> and she was never easy. <laughs> she did have the consideration not to die while we were on retreat. We were really nervous about that because it would have meant I would have had to leave the retreat and go and handle the funeral and taking the kids and all the rest of it. And the retreat would have been without a manager. And, you know, it just, we were very grateful she didn't die on retreat. She did die on August 10th. Well, we had 17 Singaporean visitors. <laughs> There's a, a Singaporean charitable, Buddhist charitable organization that helps us. They, they helped us renovate a mortuary at one of the hospitals last year. This year they paid for our retreat. They're really kind to us. So when they bring 17 people and want to learn Reiki and want to go and give out food at six different places in the morning and go to six different hospitals in the afternoon, we do it. <laughs> we do it anyway, but we do it with a very grateful heart. So they were there. <laughs> the day after they left, we went and we got the kids. And the kids are fine. Kids are. Her 13-year-old was taking care of everything. Her 4-year-old was crazed. He's never had a day of stability in his life. He's never known when the next meal was going to happen. So they're getting a little bit of stability. And we were, I was out there a week ago, and they're great. Okay, this is getting long and rambling. Now I'm going to try and pull it together. <laughs> Wish me luck. <laughs> this is the moral conflict. Because if there's anything I know and understand, if there's anything that is foundational for our work, it's that no one life is more important than any other life. The five AIDS patients on my staff have been getting their medicines at the National AIDS Hospital. There is one hospital which is not going to crash next year. 
and that's run by Hope International that are very fundamentalist Christian if you look at them here and on the ground they're just a thousand percent better. We've worked closely with them for a very long time. So I went and I said to Hope, can you take my people? I've got five people, five staff members. Two of them are in your hospice right now doing Reiki with your patients. You know these people. (laughs) They said, well, the government is making this extremely difficult. They do not want transfers like this anymore because they're afraid everybody's going to transfer and get out. But we'll talk to the head of the hospital. So that was half of it. The other half of it was they have to get released from Rusi. And maybe their doctors will not feel so good about releasing them from Rusi. But there's one doctor we've known at Rusi. He's arguably the funniest AIDS doctor in Cambodia. And I was seeing him about another matter, and I very, very, very hesitantly said a half a sentence about my patients, maybe. And he immediately volunteered to transfer all of them because he has been training doctors for the government in the provinces, and he's been working with the government, and he knows exactly what they're doing. So I didn't even have to say a whole sentence. So now that I've got the ducks in a row, (coughs) I've got a lot of time for moral qualms. (laughs) I actually got them right after I talked to Hope. (laughs) And I wrote to a couple of people about them, one of whom had been the head of Marinol, and he phoned me. And he said, you know, when we thought we were going to get chicken flu, Jim, that was the guy who was my supervisor, got Tamiflu for all of the staff. And I said, I'm not going to take it. Why should I take it when all these Cambodians don't have it? And Jim said, If this flu hits, if we get this epidemic, you're going to be working, all of us are going to be working 24-7. We can't afford not to have you. So that kind of went a long way in helping me make peace with things. Not 100%, but maybe 80%. Kind of, okay, This is because they really will be needed. And because I'm probably going to be doing a lot more direct work with patients if it gets like this, because we're going to need everybody. So, the last time I saw Sokda before she died, (laughs) she was hanging on by a thread and all of her anger had gone. You know, this is a woman for whom anger was just sort of so built into the system and it was gone. And I had been exhausted with her. I'd been sick to death of her. 
You know, I'd been sick to death of being tired anyway and going out there and having her yell at me and having her calling and yelling at my director. And, you know, she doesn't have this little piece of luxury that she wants. <laughs> so I was doing Reiki with her. Piet, my director, was worrying about funeral arrangements and all the rest of it and setting it up in the city and... And I'm doing Reiki, and her face is getting very, 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 very beautiful. And somewhere in there, I just really made peace with her. I was very grateful for that. You know, for all that, all that we'd been through together. And later, about an hour later, when we left the village, I realized that every bit of my moral qualms had disappeared. That I no longer had any reservations whatsoever about the transfer of my staff. And I can't explain that. Yeah. And I can't explain how these two irreconcilable principles seem to coexist. The one that my, the lives of my staff are not more important than any of the other lives. But we do take the best possible care that we can of the lives that come into our keeping in whatever way. So somehow, you know, and it's not simply that I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand to have to do that. I mean, of course I can and I will if I have to. But to to have to preside over deaths in my staff when the people I have are as amazing as they are is going to be really, really horrible. And I'm real glad I'm not going to have to do that. I'm not predictably going to have to do that. Okay. And they, of course, are just delighted. <laughs> I didn't say a word to them till we got the clearance. And then they were just completely, totally happy. I had no idea how afraid they were until they got the clearance and were relieved and did it. Yeah. So one of the things that seems to have happened is that my job is not taking care of the patients in the same way anymore. My job is taking care of my staff. My job is taking care of the project. Yeah, and I seem to have made much more peace with that than I have along the way, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I guess that's where the joy comes in. All right, I've talked a really long time this morning, and it's probably been totally chaotic. Why don't you ask me some questions? <laughs> Sure. You said that you had 81 people, I think, 
No, 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 sorry. 81 prisoners that we are supplying with supplementary food and money. Okay. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. We run about 350 to 375 patients at any given time right now. And about 200 of those are Reiki patients. In other words, they're people that we see in the hospices, in their homes, and we do Reiki with as needed. Uh, the other 175 are patients for transportation. And our annual budget has skyrocketed. Our annual, the, what I set the annual budget at this year in the two-page project description is $78,000. Now, I understand that doesn't quite sound so much in America, and that is 10 of us. That includes absolutely everything, including me. You know, my salary is 300 bucks a month. Um, and my cousin pays for my airfare to come here every year. But that's all of it. That's all of the, the rent, the transportation, the communications, the salaries, the supplements, and all patient care things. So at, at our current level, it's 78000 I remember when it was 20000 <laughs> Yeah, okay. So what I remember is still true that your 20 bucks really matters. <laughs> you donate. Oh, well, yeah, but this is not this is not the fundraiser. We're going to have a fundraiser and I thank you for this. But this is the Dhamma talk. This is where <laughs> This is where the question is what has any of this got to do with the Buddhist teachings? Yeah. That's not to criticize, Linda. I'm very grateful that you did that. Uh, you talked about the moral, some moral quandaries you come across. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the example of this particular woman who's mm -hmm. taking more resources mm -hmm. than so many other mm -hmm. people, but at the same time, her yeah. life is equal to others. But mm -hmm. Uh, actually, she wasn't so hard because somebody was doing that. My Australian friend in the Tibetan tradition took her on. But so she was taking her time. She was taking her time. Taking yeah. 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 So in that sense, she's exactly the same paradox as, you know, I transferring my staff when I can't transfer anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. She wore us out. <laughs> um, Can you say something about taking more than your share? I mean, not you, but sort of, you know, the, the, uh, that we should not take what's not freely given. Um, but at the same time, some people take more than their share. Mm -hmm. In my judgment, and I don't know how to balance yeah. it in my own relationships with people when I, yeah. this is my observation and my judgment. 
Sokta, pardon my language, was a pain in the ass in a bottomless pit. And I miss her enormously. Because <laughs> somehow, you know, what I've noticed with real problem people is that we think we love, we think we take care of people because we love them. Sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes we love people because we take care of them so much. But with Sokta, I was also seeing the other thing that we see in relatives a lot, that when it goes on too long and it gets too debilitating, then it gets very, very hard to care. Okay, And it did. It did get very hard to care. Um... For years, we tried to set limits with her. <laughs> you know, there's always somebody else who is so completely gracious and asks for so little and gives us so much love. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible. I don't know how to measure these things. You know, I just don't know how to measure these things. As practitioners, we're called upon to give everything. You know, as people, that's real hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you need to get... Okay. <laughs> Where do you find the joy amidst... That's actually the burnout part of this talk. <laughs> um, and if you practice with it, if you see it, if you enter it, if you investigate it, then it gets a chance to move through you and go away. And the joy is always there. And what I was discovering through Sokda is that burnout's really a trip. Because <laughs> I haven't had burnout in a while. <laughs> and I was getting it big time with her, just really big time with her. And, you know, so thank, you know, it's part of what I was getting in Burma, because Burma's really a good, good, tough practice place, and those Burmese teachers are amazing. And, not that you can't get it from Gil, because of course you can. <laughs> but, if you go there, If you stop telling stories about the burnout and you stop not letting it in because you want to be someone who isn't burned out. And, you know, it's just like everything else. You know, oh, you know, this is burnout. And then when you do it, it's just kind of cool. <laughs> and I can't explain it any more than I can explain how it works with anything else, but it really is no different. 
You know, we, we get burned out. I get anesthetized. I get anesthetized big time when I'm burned out. I just don't feel things. You know, and you just sit there and, okay, anesthetized. Yeah. <laughs> right in the shoulders. wonder what ever happened to my heart chakra. <laughs> Brown's a trip and a half. <laughs> oh, thank you. This is uh, not a question, but a yeah. comment about that, that issue of triage. <laughs> because I'm, I'm you do it, that. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a um, an eternal dilemma, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to say one thing that I support the decision that you made about the staff. Yeah, in my humble yeah. opinion, because um, those people um, have to be secure in order to take risks mm-hmm. with the people they serve, yeah. and they have to take those risks in order to secure the people that they serve. And yeah, you allow them to do that. Yeah, it was it was so much more visceral than that. But thank you, you know, <laughs> it was just, <laughs> um, yeah. Everybody supports the decision. I haven't had a single person say to me, "Yeah, you shouldn't have transferred your patients. You should let them." <laughs> no, but yeah, and and when I got peaceful about it, I really got peaceful about it. Yeah, thank you. I know a lot of people in this room have got plenty of experience with triage and risk and crises. Yeah, one of the great things about this group is that there are so many incredible people in it. Someone back there? Yeah, get the, get the mic. Excuse me, can I just interject? Oh, yeah, that people can go. That we're running over and yeah. people want to stay, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I am I am running over and don't feel like you have to stay. You know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's let's maybe let the people clear. A <coughs> cornerstone of A cornerstone of what you provide seems to be Reiki. Yep. What is Reiki? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry if I don't know. No, no, no. I should have explained it. Um, Reiki is a form of energy. I I hesitate to use the word healing because we never use it in front of patients because they'll think we're going to cure their AIDS. We call it meditation with our hands. What you're doing is you're channeling chi through your chakra, your hand chakra, and sending it. And I don't know why it works. No. Um, but it, people feel better. I started using it. Somebody, My second year in the project, I've been doing a lot of massage. Someone said, you should learn Reiki. I said, okay. 
So I got the Reiki and I started using it with the patients and they started like lining up for it. <laughs> um, they experience it as love. They experience it, you know, as allowing them to release many things. Healing touch is a set of techniques that are complementary to it that were designed by a nurse. Um, the cornerstone, I want to just... If we've got a cornerstone, what we're trying to do is help people know that the Buddhist compassion is already available. And everything we do is about that. So Reiki isn't really a cornerstone. It's something we use a tremendous amount. But everything is done for that purpose. You know, because it is there. It is there. Uh, also on the triaging of resources, it's hard when your resources are spiritual to decide how to triage. <laughs> it's not like who's got the worst wound. <laughs> okay, yeah. Done? Okay, thank everybody.